This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. This project that we undertook to keep ourselves safe and prosperous has worked remarkably well and deserves a chance to work for decades more. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The third annual Feature Strategy Forum focused on cooperation and conflict in the time of COVID-19. The conference connects national security practitioners and academic scholars. The panel discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on grand strategy examined how the pandemic might change the way the United States approaches foreign policy, its relations with allies and competitors, and the balance between domestic needs and national security priorities. I moderated the conversation, which took place on June 3, 2020, and featured security and public health experts. The Future Strategy Forum is brought to you by CSIS and the Kissinger Center at Johns Hopkins SICE. Our topic today is COVID-19 and grand strategy, and we've assembled a great panel for this discussion, and let me introduce everyone. First up is Dr. Jennifer Bowie. She is Senior Policy Researcher and the Tang Chair in China Policy Studies at RAND. She is also a tenured Associate Professor and Behavioral Epidemiologist at the Department of International Health, the School of Nursing and Health Studies at Georgetown University. She is an MD in Clinical Medicine. Dr. Corey Shockey is Director of the Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, better known as AEI. She has held a number of very high-level government positions at the State Department, the Defense Department, and she served on the National Security Council at the White House. And Dr. Mira Rapp-Hooper is Swarzman's Senior Fellow for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her first book, Shields of the Republic, The Triumph and Peril of America's Alliances, is coming out next week, actually on Tuesday, so you'll want to get it, and it is incredibly relevant to the conversation we're about to have right now. Um, In fact, she'll be back at CSIS on June 15th for a book talk, so you'll want to make sure that you also come back and tune in for that. Corey, Mira, and Jennifer, thank you all so much for being here today. I want to start by asking you this very broad question about grand strategy. What are America's grand strategic objectives and does COVID-19, will it cause the U.S. to have to rethink or reprioritize any of them? Uh, Corey, let's start with you on that question. Sure. I do think that there is going to be a reprioritization. I think we're likely to see a broadening of the definition of national security to include health security. I think we have seen a real-time test of President Trump's national security strategy, America First, and it has made us less safe by removing the strategic depth that international cooperation and international institutions have provided us. Let me just give one quick example. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control used to have a position inside the Chinese health establishment. And as part of the 30% cut to international engagement and diplomacy that the Trump administration has year after year tried to get through Congress with their budget, 
they eliminated that position, which eliminated our ability to have relationships with Chinese doctors um, and healthcare providers, and to be able to have a way of judging the validity of what the Chinese government was saying. So I think that's just one example of how uh, drawing in on international engagement has proved the wrong approach to this. So to sum up, I think we'll see a broadening of the definition of national security. I think we'll return to a lot more international engagement and that the American public will be a lot more supportive of that engagement because now they've seen the alternative. Mira? Thanks so much, Beverly. And thanks to all the organizers of the Future Strategy Forum. This is such an important event. It's my first time taking part in it, and I'm really delighted to be here with this extraordinary panel of colleagues. I actually want to start my answer to your question by acknowledging the incredibly important domestic moment that we're living through right now. Um, it is all too easy to feel like we're having foreign policy conversations in a bubble that's unconnected to what's going on in our streets and in our cities. But actually, that conversation and that message will help to determine the future of our role in the world. So I just want to place that front and center of the, the answer that I'm going to now turn to provide to Beverly's first question. I'll start by noting that I think that the central grand strategic role of the pandemic has been to reveal domestic competency around the world. Um, that is to show the level of government capacity um, in any country, whether the United States, China, or our allies, or the developing world. And in the case of the United States, that revelation of competency has tended to be quite poor. The United States has vastly underperformed its capacity, meaning compared to where we were before the pandemic, we have acted uh, in a way that demonstrates capacity far short of that of what we should have been capable of. When it comes to grand strategic objectives, I have been myself a little bit unclear on what exactly those were for the last several years before this crisis. Certainly, our national security strategy and our national defense strategy frame U.S. foreign policy in terms of great power competition. But when it comes to the question of what our objectives are in those competitions, I think that has remained an elusive set of questions. Certainly for the last few years, U.S. policy towards China has been highly confrontational, although I will argue rather uncompetitive, um, doing relatively little to strengthen the United States um, and relatively little to support international cooperation, exactly as Corey was indicating. And while China has had its own deeply flawed response, we've also seen, of course, across the course of this pandemic, many American allies demonstrating extraordinary competence and excelling in this incredibly difficult moment. So the central point I would make is that in the last few months, the United States' inability to care for its own people, the economic fallout, and the fact that this has all been unequally distributed has diminished the United States in the eyes of the world. But I tend to agree with Corey. This may well be a wake-up call and exactly the rallying cry we need to return to the forms of international cooperation that might have kept us safer. Thank you, Corey and Mira. And Jennifer, before I dive into China and the public health question that I have for you, anything to add to what Mira and Corey said about grand strategy and rethinking it in light of COVID? Yes, uh, I completely agree with Corey and Amira on, on their assessment. Uh, I would say certainly this uh, COVID-19 make uh, unprecedented in the modern era 
on its uh, claim of lives and our livelihood, uh, certainly uh, set alarm that uh, uh, the life of uh, Americans is not only threatened by uh, foreign adversaries, but also by these things that commonly uh, threaten everyone, like pandemic, climate change. So I would say, uh, just highlight two more things. One is I, I'm really looking forward to a long-term strategy. Long-term has two layers of meanings. One is, uh, first of all, not to focus on the short-term outcome, like distracting uh, some of the pandemic uh, uh, focus by geopolitics. And second layer is we have to come out of this panic and uh, neglect uh, state. Uh, so we have to think about, like uh, many of the countries in East Asia that successfully contain the virus, and their experience is due to their experience with other coronavirus like SARS and MERS, but they put public health uh, focus in the legislations, uh, maintain a healthy workforce and so on. So that's another long-term. And the second point I want to highlight is, as we uh, just mentioned, we need international collaboration. And with that, we need diplomacy uh, more than anything else. I'll stop there. Well, I wanna follow up on uh, what you were saying there by asking about the fact that public health is now front and center in, U.S. strategy and policy in a way that it, it probably hasn't been in a while, if ever. So where should or where does public health fit in terms of when we're talking about a grand strategy? Well, lots of people are focusing, uh, certainly we, we cannot ignore the current U.S.-China tension, right? Um, but I have to say that U.S.-China actually have a long uh, history of collaboration on pandemic uh, preparedness. And ever since uh, 2003, that it revealed that China has a weak and fragmented public health system, U.S. CDC really reached out to China, and China at the time embraced this collaboration. And then they uh, restructured the CDC according to the US CDC model. And together they set up a world-class influenza center. So not many people probably heard of H7N9 avian flu that actually also came out of China uh, in 2013. Uh, so far it has uh, affected more than about 2000 people and but has a very high fatality rate about 40% for fatality rate. And it was ranked a number very high uh, on the zoonotic uh, disease list in the US CDC. So in 2013, US CDC sent 40 experts immediately to China and working with the U China CDC to form the, the response and to contain uh, the, the virus really in the region. We actually didn't see any of that case coming here and they together build a vaccine for that. So it's that type of collaboration that we need for a pandemic uh, response. But we have seen in the last uh, three, four years uh, is that um, uh, build on that uh, uh, foundation that US CDC actually work, have an office up on the same compound of the China CDC. But in the recent years, that has been moved to the US embassy and the staff has reduced from 47 to 14 with only three Americans. So it's, this is just one example of uh, the importance of the collaboration. And certainly I'm hoping, looking forward, hopefully that COVID can reignite some of the will uh, for collaboration. But 
you know, given the current tension, I would say that would not happen automatically because that's not the trajectory we have seen. But we do need a diplomacy uh, that's very important. If I could follow up really quickly, you raised the tensions between the U.S. and China that were brewing, if not at full boil, before COVID happened. And since COVID has happened, the tensions have only grown. Given the the reduction in staff, what are some other problems or issues that you anticipate happening because the tensions are, are currently so high in terms of the U.S. and China ever collaborating again as they did on SARS? Yeah, so I think we have seen over the years that for both countries, uh, there's a steadily a slightly decline of funding for public health. I mean, public health is a public good. You know, it doesn't really uh, generate a lot of uh, profits and so on. So it really relying on public determined political will to maintain that system. But I see that uh, both country that that's uh, actually on, on the decline. So that's one thing I feel that uh, having a global collaboration will help each other, all these CDCs and public health professionals to help them to advocate for public health. Uh, so global health agenda is very important uh, and the leadership in this area is important. And as you said, uh, after COVID, we have seen that uh, you know, partly for because of the, uh, both countries faltered in the early management of uh, of COVID. Uh, so I think partly due to the defense uh, system, uh, the partly due to distraction, right? Um, so they uh, really accuse each other for to, to be responsible for this pandemic. I mean, given what we know of this virus, I, I, I'm very uh, doubt that any country can, can contain this, uh, given its asymptomatic uh, proportion of the transmission, uh, given the highly contagious nature. So this is a time not to blame each other, but really this is a time that uh, a global community should come together to share the successful stories uh, about the, the virus con con uh, containment. Uh, there are many good uh, examples. Actually, China, after the first step of uh, a delay, uh, once the central government realized that this is a highly contagious pandemic, uh, they have a ready playbook and they are pretty successfully contained the virus and now uh, quickly reopened. So they are uh, back to uh, provide the global supplies. Uh, so there are lots of uh, experience to share and also the next step in terms of vaccine uh, development, uh, licensing, manufacturing, distribution. This is exactly the time that we need uh, people to put put force together to support international organizations to help this. And, and finally, um, I would say that, uh, the, uh, that there got to be uh, a global health uh, beyond even just US and China. There should be alliance focusing on the long-term plans. Thank you so much, Jennifer. You brilliantly set up the next question, and I want to bring Corey and Mira back into it with you because I wanted to ask about alliances and international cooperation, they've traditionally been at the heart of U.S. grand strategy, but that's becoming less and less a thing, if you will, um, particularly with the announcement that we are ending our relationship 
with WHO. And based on the things that you just said, it seems as if an organization like WHO would be critical in helping countries work together to figure out a vaccine for uh COVID-19. So what are the implications, and Mira, particularly because uh, uh, alliances are uh, something you're working on right now, what are the implications for the diminished participation in international organizations and the diminished cooperation uh, between the U.S. and other countries? Well, Beverly, thanks so much for a really important question. Um, I'll break it into two, which is to say, what are what are the implications of diminished U.S. participation in multilateral institutions, and how should we be thinking about our alliances in a moment like this? Um, I think even before uh, the pandemic hit the world, it was very clear uh, that the United States was suffering from its diminished participation in international organizations. Uh, when you look at international polling of public opinion of the United States and U.S. leadership, some of the events and occurrences that contributed most precipitously to the decline of perception of U.S. standing was withdrawal from international agreements, was withdrawal from the Paris Climate Change Accord or the scuttling of the Iran nuclear deal. And now, of course, with this move to withdraw unilaterally from the WHO, the world will have seen the United States remove itself from the only plausible governance body at the height of the greatest public health crisis that we've seen in a century. Um, and incidentally, doing so at a moment where the United States claims to be competing with China, but has just ceded the WHO to China. Um, so I think this now looks like a long-term or at least medium-term pattern of U.S. withdrawal, leaving of power vacuums, um, and a clear set of signs of the type of disorder we can continue to expect if the United States does not re-engage itself in an international governance project for the future. Um, but when it comes to the question of the U.S. alliance system and how that should relate to our current moment, I think it's pretty clear that both the U.S. alliance system is still very relevant to our role in the world, but that it's not set up as it should be for the types of threats that we are facing in the 21st century. The American alliance system, after all, was founded in the early days of the Cold War primarily to deter and defend against high-end military and nuclear threats from the Soviet Union. It was remarkably successful on the terms it set out for itself during the Cold War. Uh, but ever since then, it's experienced a not insubstantial amount of strategic drift. Um, namely, it has not been focused on some of the most obvious threats that beset us in the 21st century, while rivals like China and Russia have moved into new spaces. Now we confront this threat of pandemic disease, and it is all the more evident to us that we need our alliances to operate in non-military spaces. We need to expand them, expand the types of cooperation that we do to apply to things like cyberspace, election interference, but also to the threat of pandemic disease and building resilient global supply chains for the next time we face a threat like this one. So I hope like Corey, that this will be a call for a renewed form of internationalism. And I hope that the role of American alliances will be key to that renewal, specifically the expansion of our alliances into these non-military domains that are so clearly the types of threats we will face going forward. Corey, hop in here. You are the historian on the panel. I agree with everything Dr. Rapp Hooper has just said, and I'm so eager to learn from her at length by reading her book. I would just add two points. The first is it is a ridiculous solecism on the part of the United States to believe 
that if we stop participating in international cooperation and institutions, that that cooperation stops happening. What you see as the US withdraws is others proceeding without us. What we are doing is simply taking ourselves out of the equation as a maker of rules and an influencer of standards. And that's exactly what you saw with the World Health Organization. It's also what you saw with the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. When the Trump administration withdrew the United States from it, to their great credit, many of America's liberal allies proceeded without us because middle powers and friends of the United States still have interests to advance whether or not we help them advance them. So that's the first point. Us with drawing from cooperation and institutions doesn't prevent them from functioning. It just prevents us from being influential in them. The second thing I would say though, and this is um, a more hopeful note, is that the federal government not doing things doesn't mean the United States ceases to do them. And I think that's a really important point of emphasis. You know, the Trump administration withdrew from the Paris Climate Accords, has rolled back a lot of federal regulatory standards that affect uh, climate outputs. And they have, so they're overtly hostile to the undertaking. And yet the UN Secretary General said 18 months ago that the first country that's going to meet its Paris Climate Accord goals is the United States of America. And that's because the great golden state of California and the city of Chicago and Michael Bloomberg's efforts and sanctimonious Apple computers and my mom are all uh, as members of, a, of civil society moving ahead where the federal government is failing. And that's the secret of American hegemony. When the Trump administration stopped paying America's dues to the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation stepped in to replace that money. And so we shouldn't just grade the United States based on the often counterproductive work of its federal government, but also realize that there are a number of centers of power, and that's our saving grace. There are two questions that I'm going to roll into one that are relevant to this part of our conversation. We've touched on part of it about what the U.S. needs to do to increase diplomacy international operation once again. Um, but uh, the question is from Suzanne Freeman. If you only had a few minutes to convince our current policymakers, how would you communicate the gains um, for the United States from international cooperation? Uh, you've all done a good job of summarizing it, but what would you say? if you had five minutes with the president? Uh, well, I would spend my five minutes with the president on uh, helping him understand that equal justice before the law is a national security issue, as Mira pointed out. But if I had to talk about international cooperation, I would make the case on the basis of strategic depth that you don't want to fight your wars on home territory and you don't want to solve your problems on home territory. You want to have the ability to identify early where bad trends are gathering and deal with them before the cost goes way up. 
I'll just tack on to that terrific answer um, because I would start from a very similar premise, which is to say that international cooperation as a American strategy was never premised on altruism. This was a set of strategies that we adopted because it was in our self-interest. We sought to keep ourselves safe and prosperous through the use of alliances and international institutions that would allow us to keep threats far from our shores and allow us to disentangle thorny problems before they became those threats that would manifest at home. And the record of this system is remarkable. But a feature of the system is that if you are preempting or if you are deterring international crises, you don't see the record, right? The record is the peace, the wars that don't break out, the crises that don't escalate. So the very fact that this system has endured for so long, for 70 years, is the metric of its success. The fact that it is tattered and beleaguered in this moment no doubt means that it needs substantial renovation. But this project that we undertook to keep ourselves safe and prosperous has worked remarkably well and deserves a chance to work for decades more. So I will quickly add, uh, I agree with all your con great comments. Uh, I would say, you know, to the president that uh, we have seen uh, every day now that uh, a border, a travel ban cannot uh, stop the virus travel through these borders or geopolitics. Uh, so uh, we have seen that, that this successful strategy is like H7 and 9. It's, it's like collab uh, collaborations on Ebola. Uh, that effectively uh, uh, protect the American people. So the collaboration uh, is not only for the other country, the collaboration is really to protect US. And this leads into a question that uh, has come in through our uh, Ask the Question, and I remind the audience you can submit questions and please do so. Has our response to COVID-19 diminished our overall standing in the world and how does that impact great power competition? Does it lessen the appeal of the U.S. as a role model? This question coming from Dave Majumbar at the Defense Department. Who would like to tackle that? I'll take a swing at that one. Um, yes, it definitely has for exactly the reason Mira said, which is our shambolic uh, response and ineffective response to it reminds people that the United States is really bad at a lot of things very often. But I would caution that it's early days just yet. Um, and free societies tend to be slow to mobilize, slow to organize, but enduring in their commitments because you build a broad basis of public support. Um, and I think I see that happening. Moreover, uh, we're not the only country that's done a bad job of this. And so where great power competition uh, comes into it, um, China hasn't done a particularly good or uh, magnanimous job of managing the crisis either. In fact, I think China has set back its international standing even more than the United States, in part by their willful suppression of information about what was happening, but second of all, by um, some pretty mean-spirited efforts to intimidate, uh, to intimidate Sweden, Australia, many other countries, where if they had played their hands smarter, uh, could have had a pretty good chance to dent the attractiveness of the American alternative. 
So it's a relative, not an absolute indicator. The last thing I would say is that the United States isn't good at having stuff right. We're good at getting stuff right. I think the best thing written about American foreign policy was an article in about 2006 by James Fallows in The Atlantic, uh, when he had just come back from several years as The Atlantic's correspondent in Beijing, reflecting on the fact that the United States, you know, we have, we're a big diverse country, we have a lot of competing interests. Once we start to get worried about a problem, we have a pretty good record of fixing it. And I think that's gonna hold true in this case as well. I'll chime in here too, in particular on the question of great power competition with China. I could not agree with Corey more that China's approach to this pandemic has largely snatched self-defeat from the jaws of opportunity, um, which is to say that with the United States seemingly hobbled in the early weeks of its own domestic health crisis, China had a massive opportunity on the global stage to portray itself as a responsible pandemic actor. And while it you know, moved ahead with things like its so-called mask diplomacy, shipping masks, teams of doctors, their supplies to foreign countries, it also took an incredibly hard-edged diplomatic approach to a number of countries that prompted, prompted massive amounts of blowback in both Europe and in Africa. So much so that Chinese think tanks have been warning the Chinese Communist Party that the international damage to its reputation may not be repaired unless it changes tax. Now, we've still seen China conduct a very assertive foreign policy even since those warnings. Of course, it's new bill that would forever change the status of Hong Kong and remove its semi-autonomous status. But the basic sort of proving ground has shown that even with the United States seemingly on its knees, China is not yet capable or ready to be a global leader of the type that one should want in crisis. So I do expect that great power competition will continue long after this pandemic is over. Unfortunately, I think the pandemic itself has placed a great amount of downward pressure on the U.S.-China relationship, accelerating competition in areas from the economic domain to technology to the South China Sea to information diplomacy over the pandemic itself. But one of the things we have learned from China's own flawed response is that it is not yet ready to replace the United States. So if Washington is to change tax and restore itself, it still has the structural opening to do so. So I would just add uh, that we're still at the very beginning uh, we have, uh, of the, this pandemic. Uh, we are, haven't seen the light at the end of the tunnel yet. Uh, and I would say again, uh, we have to stop this racing to the bottom um, strategy. Uh, there are lots of things that's more than uh, competition. There needs international collaboration and pandemic is one of them. If one of the country, one region of the, the world uh, is still having a epidemic, no one is safe um, before the vaccine, before uh, the, we have seen the border uh, cannot stop uh, this, this vaccine. So I would like to just to highlight that. Go ahead, Corey. I was just commending how well said that was by Jennifer. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's a question from the audience 
specifically that I want to ask uh, Jennifer. It's from Ashley Klein at Booz Allen Hamilton, and uh, and it relates to something that you said a moment ago uh, about how viruses don't respect borders uh, <laughs> around the country. Um, and uh, she asks about the importance of combating bio threats and pandemic has been written about in previous uh, strategy documents. Um, but budgets have not reflected that. So how do you see where the emphasis on science and health security and national security decisions can be better emphasized? Right, uh, I, uh, that's a great question, thank you. Uh, I do uh, want to highlight uh, that in one of the testimony to Congress in the past uh, months, uh, we talked about uh, the China's uh, development in healthcare and public health and global health. Uh, they're certainly very ambitious uh, in their investment uh, in biomedical uh, industry, both public and private, is much higher than uh, most of the other countries. Uh, there, I think, from 2007 to 2013, it's about, uh, you know, every year it's about 8% increase, whereas in the U.S. and some of the European uh, countries, it's a negative fig figure. So uh, I, I do think this is, uh, this should be uh, one of the uh, priority for national strategy. And then you mentioned the funding. Uh, that's another point I, I, I hope I can, uh, I can bring up, uh, especially for the grant strategy, is that we need to be uh, creative. Uh, we, we cannot just hold on to a Cold War mentality and focusing on some of the hard power. We have to think of the soft power as well as redirecting some of the, uh, the funding uh, from the guns to some of the nuances. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, when I read about a, a Navy ship group will need $6 million a day to maintain, uh, then, you know, and, and do we need that many uh, currently given the current situation, given the current threat? So whether there's possibility to uh, re-examine uh, our budget and think about adding more to uh, the, the AIs, the two STEMs, to biomedical, uh, and, and the, pub, the public uh, investment will help the, build up this infrastructure to uh, attract uh, the private you know, the, the investment. And lastly, I would say, I want to keep uh, the, the strengths of the US. Some of those need uh, more funding. Some of them just need to be continued. Uh, US is uh, very good in soft power in terms of bringing out the, the, the inspirations, have an openness, has we attract the best brains of the world coming to, we have a great uh, higher education system and let's not to harm those advantage of the US. So I agree with much of what Jennifer just said, but I do want to take issue with one point, which is the notion that we are spending too much money on our defense and that just because battle groups are expensive, they're not worthwhile. Uh, and I think projecting American power militarily is also important. I'm not saying that soft power is not important. I'm not saying all sorts of other things. But if you look at the aggressiveness with which China is building and using conventional military forces, our ability to protect our allies and our interests still depends on our ability to project military power through the first island chain, 
to restrain China's uh, more belligerent tendencies. I agree with that. Um, but all I'm saying is balance. Uh, I, I think at the same time, we need to step up the diplomacy. We need to step up uh, the domestic investment uh, in health, uh, in health, uh, in science, and all of that. And there's one question from the uh, audience uh, directly related uh, to this uh, to this point here about the calls uh, to decrease funding in the wake of all of the money that has had to be spent on COVID-19. Is that going to result in uh, an inability for the U.S. to reach its goals internationally in terms of what we want to be the defense strategy going forward? So I'll take a, a swing at that. My guess is that the defense strategy is currently underfunded by about $200 billion a year. So if you actually had to execute the national defense strategy, we would probably lose that war in some theaters and in many aspects. Uh, but I think it's also true that the United States can both afford to defend itself and afford to uh, undertake massive social spending that the pandemic shows it needed. Uh, for example, we just splashed out on a $4 trillion stimulus program. First of all, the Congress actually did it. Second of all, they did it fast enough to be useful. And when was the last time Congress showed itself capable of that? Third, when they did that, we nonetheless didn't see any movement in interest rates or any diminution of foreign or domestic willingness to buy that deficit spending by the United States. So this is a huge opportunity for us to limit the economic damage of the pandemic, make a bunch of social investments, um, I would love to see the power lines in my great golden state of California buried underground so they don't uh, cause a fire risk. There is no shortage of things we can afford to do when the economy is in danger and there is this much international latitude for us to deficit spend. Not to mention all the jobs that doing something like burying the power lines would create. Uh, I want to shift the conversation just a bit because we have a, a question uh, uh, about it uh, online, and I have a question about it, and I want to talk about how COVID may impact U.S. foreign policy um, with its adversaries and competitors as well as with its allies. So I kind of want to combine my question on that with the question from uh, Ryan Dukeman at Princeton. How would you convince Congress or the or uh, the the current administration um, or the next administration to restructure the U.S. foreign policy apparatus, uh, which uh, currently gives primacy to regionally focused offices and priorities, so that it can address transnational threats? Which something like COVID is obviously a transnational threat. Again, the virus doesn't recognize border. Uh, you know, I'm my background is public health and health, uh, and certainly I'm getting into some of the collaboration on health and education. So I'm not an expert on this, but I think there's a no-brainer to say right now at this moment, 
uh, we certainly want to support a international uh, alliance uh, to join force to work on COVID. And WHO has uh, 194 co member countries then under the IHR, the International Health Regulation. All these countries are supposed to send data uh, to uh, WHO can coordinate uh, the data and provide technical support. So that's a, a certainly a great place already uh, being in the position, a good position to, to combat uh, COVID. I would say with the G20 uh, that sanctions and tariffs uh, relates to the medical supplies, that given the shortage of that, uh, that we're, we're uh, waging a long-term uh, war on COVID-19 uh, until we have a good solution on vaccine or treatment that we need to think about how to use the resources, distribute them effectively. So I think, you know, we should consider some of the sanctions and tariffs to remove those uh, to help the poor countries uh, to uh, the, the, where the countries that need more resources to, uh, to battle this. And finally, I, I still think that uh, we should have a global a common fund for vaccine manufacturing and development. Jennifer, there was another uh, question uh, from Nandita Balakrishnan out at Stanford that uh, says, you know, maybe COVID is once in a lifetime uh, as compared to other, uh, uh, other pandemics. Um, do you think the lessons that have been learned um, will have long-term implications for diplomacy and, and cooperation and budgets? Absolutely. I, I do agree that COVID-19 is a severe public health crisis, uh, especially for the U.S. that uh, we haven't seen for a while. Um, but as I said, you know, in, in East uh, Asia countries, we have seen that some many of the, these countries uh, react very successfully on, on COVID. And it's not because they are uh, you know, smarter or stronger. It's only because they have experienced the SARS uh, on on their land. They have experienced the MERS. Uh, so I think definitely the, the experience we learn from these uh, uh, crises will help us uh, build up a strong. Uh, system uh, that's working, uh, and that will help us to come back in the next. Uh, uh, crisis, and I would not say you know this will be the last one. Uh, even at this scale, we we never know that. Uh, you know, when I document a public health crisis, every four or five years, there's an epidemic somewhere in the world. Uh, uh, in the last twenty years, uh, several avian flu, uh, swine flu, uh, Ebola. Uh, so often we see multiple uh, uh, the pandemics uh, parallel uh, in, in a, at a time uh, at different places. So we need to be uh, strengthening the system to prepare for, for the prepared. I'll just chime in on that, Beverly, if I may, um, which is to reinforce the point that even if COVID, and, and let's hope it does, turn out to be a once-in-a-lifetime event, the smartest American and international strategy would still be to prepare for the next pandemic as though there would be another one. Of course, part of what we have seen in this crisis is not just that at the federal level, we disbanded NSC directorates that were intended to be focused on pandemics or underinvested in our global health cooperation with foreign countries. We also disinvested at the state and local level in stockpiling the materials, the ventilators, 
everything we should have needed at the moment of utmost crisis. So this was a chronic degradation in our preparedness for a moment like this one. I do expect that we will see a strong emphasis on creating strategic stockpiles of materials that we need for the next public health crisis. And part of what we should be doing is not only preparing to put those precautions in place in case we need them, but figuring out how to move them around the world if the next crisis should happen elsewhere, such that international cooperation in moments of pandemic becomes the norm and not something that we have to prepare for and try to figure out while we are waging the battle already underway. It's the same theory of the case that we brought to the building of international institutions and alliances in the post-war moment. And even if we do not face another global pandemic like this one for years to come, we will all still be safer and better off if we do it. And Mary, to follow up on that, uh, one question uh, that I have on a point that you raised about the availability of supplies and and the supply chain, um, do you think COVID is going to cause uh, American companies um, and the government to rethink producing a lot of critical supplies offshore, uh, whether that's in China, whether that's in Mexico, whether that's in Europe or in Africa, doesn't the place doesn't matter, but having the supply chain issues that uh, that presented themselves in this pandemic, do you think there is a, a, a going to be a, a focus on perhaps uh, of those supply chains, if not fully to the United States, closer to the United States, and what might that mean for trade relations and, and or I should say trade agreements, uh, trade deals around the globe? It's a great question, Beverly, and I think this is an area where the pandemic is placing stress on a set of issues and debates that were already well underway which is to say that for the last several years, we've already begun to debate the merits of so-called decoupling from China. That is to say, disentangling our economies, particularly in places that seem to pose risk to U.S. companies, U.S. persons, U.S. national security. I think that this pandemic will accelerate pressure not only to disentangle ourselves a bit from China in the high-end technological space, which is where a lot of these debates were focused, um, but now put to put more focus on lower end manufacturing and particularly those goods that are related to health, to pharmaceuticals, uh, PPE, uh, masks, ventilators, uh, the things that we have been in such short supply of over the course of this crisis. But it also holds true that not only are the US and China deeply enmeshed with one another, China is enmeshed with the rest of the global economy. So the idea that we are going to completely disentangle ourselves from China, I think is a fiction. I think the charge will end up being after this pandemic to think seriously about what items are truly critical to the national security in nature, probably with a slightly broader definition of national security than we had before to Corey's important opening point, and to figure out how to make our supply chains more resilient. That is, on those critical areas where we know that in crisis we cannot do without a certain set of equipment or a certain type of commodity, figuring out how to ensure that those supply chains run through allied countries or other countries who are incredibly dependable, who share an interest with us in ensuring that those supplies can be delivered on time and in a moment of need, and really gaming through the possibilities 
for how a crisis could shake them. Uh, but I do not think ultimately that we will be living in a world where we fully separate the US and Chinese economies or any other economies for that matter. The, the key will be the sort of strategic stockpiling of critical materials, as well as building in more resilience to our interdependence abroad. I want to reinforce uh, Mira's excellent point about supply chain resilience, because what is not necessary is renationalization. What is necessary is supply chain security. And so it may result in more globalization, not less, right? Because the problem has been single point failure, um, rely, giving China a monopoly in our supply chains is the problem, not that there are Chinese components in it. If we can increase the, um, the diversity of our sourcing and have a greater degree of reliability, because of that diversity, that's a much better solution than trying to force the kind of autarky that leads everyone else worse off. So I agree, uh, the diversity is important. Uh, and I think many countries, uh, in addition to, to US are thinking that question now. Uh, I think relying on any single region or any single country is not wise uh, in any uh, crisis uh, management. Uh, and I think uh, given that I know China's uh, pharmaceutical and biomedical a little bit better uh, now uh, than say last year, uh, I know that they are uh, also working on going up uh, the value chain. Uh, so they are, uh, you know, uh, outsourcing some of their, their work. Um, and also uh, that right now China's vaccine development, they provide a sufficient vaccine for the 1.4 billion of their domestic use, but there are very few uh, vaccine that's on the, uh, the global market. Actually, WHO has been uh, help, uh, helping China and Gates and uh, pass uh, all these organizations has been trying to entice China to produce more for, for the world. And we'll see how, uh, whether that uh, critical capacity can be of use this time. Unbelievably, we're getting close to the top of the hour and there are a couple of other issues I want to raise in this conversation. We've spoken a lot about China as it relates to COVID and grand strategy. We haven't talked about Russia and how it relates to COVID and grand strategy and the misinformation, disinformation issues uh, that uh, Russia is particularly famous for. Um, and. Uh, there are also other other countries who may be factors. And we have uh, a question from Dr. Hillary Britha at King's College London um, talking about China and allies and middle powers, but what about smaller countries um, such as Singapore and the Nordics? And how do you think the US should um, engage leverage value or manage relationships with, um, with uh, smaller and, and lesser discussed countries? So kind of start with the larger Russia um, and, and its role in grand strategy and then maybe bring the conversation uh, uh, to, to answer the question about the smaller countries and their role in this. Um, Mira, I see you nodding your head, so. Well, I, I would be happy to have Corey tee off on Russia. I was gonna take the part about middle and, and smaller powers. Fire away. 
Okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll address this, this middle and smaller power issue, certainly um, with respect to countries like Singapore, other middle powers. I think, you know, as with many of its treaty allies, the United States has an extraordinary amount to learn. And when it comes to building a more resilient approach to the future of global health, it should be from countries like these. Um, certainly, Singapore is not the exact same regime type as the United States or many of its allies, but it has used many of its lessons from the SARS epidemic to great effect in its efforts to contain the virus this time around. And like South Korea, Taiwan, other really strong partners in Asia, these are the countries with whom we should have been sharing intelligence initially, from whom we should have been learning best practices at the outset, and who we should be cooperating with now as we try to develop uh, interventions and then ultimately a vaccine, which we seek to export on a massive global scale as quickly as possible, as well as to do things like resilience planning um, in our supply chain. But I also want to emphasize that we should actually take a couple of minutes to talk about countries that are even below the level of middle powers, because they are having a distinct experience in this crisis, which is quite different um, than some of the highly competent middle power countries that we've been talking about, particularly if we look at some lower income countries that were already suffering from poor governance, were already suffering from debt issues. The reverberations from this crisis are going to be catastrophic and probably years longer um, than what we will experience in the more developed world. Whether it's the inability to treat the population in hospitals, uh, the difficulties in standing up robust testing regimes, or the inability to do the type of economic stimulus that we've been talking about in the United States, we are talking about a depth of crisis um, in many parts of the world that will be with us for a very long time to come. Um, but this has to be part of US foreign policy. It's not just about broadening our view, uh, because in the crisis that we have been experiencing, we've seen things like China's Belt and Road Initiative have really problematic effects on these countries that are now suffering greatly. Countries that China had approached to work with on infrastructure projects, but where it had given difficult terms that did not promote good governance or responsible behavior are now finding themselves mired in debt crises at this moment of absolute catastrophe and looking for relief. Um, so not only are lower income countries and their recovery is going to be part of the American agenda as we look out at the world over the course of the next several years, we need to be thinking about remediation for foreign policies and their interventions and how those provoked this crisis um, in some of these countries now to try to contain the reverberations uh, before they get much worse. Such a smart perspective, Mira. Um, I wish I could turn this question back on Dr. Briefek because she does such interesting academic research on small powers in the international order. Um, lacking the ability to do that, I, my answer would be that, um, that the main beneficiaries of a rules-based international order are middle and smaller powers because they are not in and of themselves strong enough to reshape the order. And the genius of the international order the United States built after 1945 was that the rules are largely consensual, right? That the Netherlands has the ability to shape how the rule set will um, emerge, and therefore they voluntarily accede to 
most of the rules and they have a stake in the system. It's not imposed on them, they're co-creators of it. And that's been the genius of the American international order. And what I believe I am seeing in a time where we have failed American international leadership is quite a number of middle powers stepping forward to try and preserve the rules-based international order against challenges by the United States and also challenges by China. I mean, Australia was the first country to sound the alarm about Huawei components in 5G systems. It wasn't the United States. The way that Japan has taken such an interesting and creative approach to strengthening the Coast Guard capabilities, cascading training and equipment to Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, other countries as a way of helping them be more self-reliant against China's challenges. The way that India and Japan have created an alternative and much more transparent funding mechanism for infrastructure for developing countries. There's an enormous amount of good stuff going on that we're not paying enough attention to and ought to be celebrating. On the Russia question, I think Russia has had a worse COVID-19 experience where its power is concerned than the United States or China. I think in general, authoritarian governments have a more difficult challenge in managing a pandemic than free societies do because free societies sort of expect our government to be a little slow on the uptake, a little worse. Authoritarian societies rest their legitimacy such as it is either on producing nonstop economic development, China, or um, uh, control of circumstances in the case of Russia. And what we are seeing in Russia is a radically underfunded healthcare system that is in no way prepared for the pandemic that it's now um, suffering. You have governors in all of the Russian regions who are political cronies and corrupt actors, and it's really denting um, the sense of Vladimir Putin either as competent or as uh, insurmountably in control of the country. That would be a much bigger problem for Russia than other countries. And that's even before we get to the collapse in demand from developing countries for energy, which is the main source of revenue in the Russian economy. And the uh, dumb policy choices they made in the OPEC fight that resulted in them having four times the cuts to take to their output than had been originally suggested by OPEC. So this is a really bad run of policy choices and vulnerabilities that are accruing on Vladimir Putin. So I'll just add one uh, point is that many country when I visit, uh, no matter it's in uh, Southeast Asia or uh, other parts of the world, uh, the, part of it is they don't like the US-China uh, tension and the predict unpredictability uh, of this relationship. No one wants to get in the between or being forced to choose between US and China. So uh, I think that's uh, the overwhelming sentiment I got from the other countries. So again, I will focus on 
looking for opportunity. I think competition is important, is helpful, and it's critical at this moment, but also leave some room for cooperations. And that is the last word. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Bowie, Dr. Corey Shockey, and Dr. Mara Rapp Hooper, thank you so much for being here. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. Thank you, Beverly. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.